Thank you very much, Ray. I've got in my briefcase um, a few copies of the Bible study books. I'm not holding those up tonight, but I've also got, for anybody that's interested, uh, copies of some of the Bible study sheets. I send these out usually with my letters three times a year, but they're completely free if anybody's interested. Will Christians go through the tribulation, the watchman on the wall, the reformation of the church, Israel, God's purposes, past, present, and future, a millennialism, a critique, and the second coming for basic principles. So if anybody's interested in having one or more of those Bible study sheets, just see me at the end, please. Uh, and so tonight we come to Exodus chapter 9. And what I'm going to do is read the chapter first. It's a long chapter. Um, I can't really do what I did this morning, and that is take it bit by bit. I want to present the whole picture, and then I'm going to show you the pattern of God's dealings, his grace dealings with this world and the judgments uh, that he's visited upon the world as well. Uh, We're going to do that after we have our reading. So Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm 
that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that hail will fall all over Egypt on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go, you don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go just as the Lord has said through Moses. Sure, the Lord will bless to us the reading of his word. As we said this morning, so we come to an earlier period of judgment, and this was the enacting of the judgment. This morning we saw the Lord giving condemnation to Israel much later and uh, saying that the Lord would bring them to judgment as well. So I want to uh, just look and... uh, uh, and, and just show you how I understand, and this is it's what's normally called the premillennial position, but it's a position that I accept as being biblical. And um, it, it looks at the different way in which the Lord has dealt with humanity throughout history and will continue to do so. And one of the advantages of this understanding is that it's very much accepted by Messianic Jews, who ob- obviously know the scriptures better than... Any, any Gentile does. Uh, and in fact, the titles of these ages or eras or dispensations, um, I'm indebted to uh, Fruchtenbaum, uh, a wonderful Messianic Jewish teacher, uh, for, for them. So first of all, we have the Age of Innocence, which um, was very brief. It was from the creation 
to Adam and Eve's fall into sin, the curse that came along, uh, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So that's the age of innocence. Wonderful period of God's dealings with uh, humanity uh, when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then for 1,600 years after that, we have the age of conscience. Uh, and that's from the fall to the flood. Uh, and uh, we, we, we uh, know a little about the violence and the goings-on in those days from the early, chapters of, uh, the early verses of Genesis chapter 6. And then after the flood, we have the age of humanism. And that was as mankind spread again after the flood right through to the Tower of Babel. And it's called the age of humanism because people then, including Nimrod, a distant relative of Noah, uh, they said, well, we don't need God. We can do anything we like. And uh, that was uh, very much the age of humanism. And then from Abraham to Sinai, uh, just after the events we've read tonight, we have the age of promise, when God gave great promises to Abraham and his descendants regarding a promised land. The age of promise. And then from Sinai, right through to the day of Pentecost, we were looking at this this morning, we have the age of law. And that's the majority of our Old Testament, the story of Israel and uh, the uh, shenanigans they got up to. The age of law. And then the age of grace, the church age, which is our era, our dispensation, the, world we, the, the, the age we live in, uh, Pentecost right through to the Lord's return to rule and reign. Uh, in fact, the early Christians had a job to understand that history had changed after Pentecost. Uh, some of them thought that uh, the church was just an extension of Judaism and all the Gentile converts had to adhere to Jewish law. But, but uh, Paul had a very clear understanding. He says in Ephesians 3, no, this is a new age that's dawned. This is a new administration of God's grace. The prophets didn't see this, but we do. And he even had to come against Peter on this. James understood it as well. James, who of course was the natural born brother, brother of, of one of them of Jesus, uh, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 he said, no, we're not to lay down the law on the Gentiles. Something new is happening. A new day is dawning. You know, hindsight is a wonderful gift. <laughs> we look back now and we think, couldn't they see it? Well, no, when you're going through change, you can't. And perhaps we can't see the change that's going on today because we're getting toward the end of the age of grace. And uh, the Lord has warned us to watch and pray when we see the signs multiplying that we indeed do. Uh, today. And then after the, um, the age of uh, grace is over and done with, we will have the age of the kingdom, which we sang in one of our hymns tonight, uh, and when Christ is reigning, the millennial reign. And oh, what a wonderful time that's going to be. Paul puts it like this, the whole creation is groaning, waiting expectantly for the sons of God to be revealed. That's you and me, the children of God. And it was subject, the creation was subject to the bondage to decay. But it'll be released from its bondage to decay and brought into that glorious freedom of God. And we'll see the wolf lying down with the lamb and the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The nations will beat their swords into plowshares. There'll be justice and righteousness for all. 
and his name, the Lord's name, will be the only name. False religions will be banished and Satan will be locked up for a thousand years, the millennial reign. Now, at the end of each of those ages or eras or dispensations, there is a short, sharp period of judgment at the end of the age. We'll look at that a little bit when we just open up this passage. And we'll go to the next slide. Thank you very much. The times of God's judgment. And so at the end of the age of innocence, we had the curse. God said, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to bring this bondage to decay, this curse on the whole of creation. And before that, there was no curse on creation. Nature was not red in tooth and claw. That's a fallacy. Nature was in total harmony. Everything was symbiotic. Everything was working together. And it was pure and it was whole. God looked at all that he'd made and said, it's very good. Now, he couldn't have said that if nature was struggling for survival and the, and the survival of the fittest and all the mayhem that evolutionists tell us went on. No, God said it's all very good. And then the curse came. And uh, creation became the, uh, the, the, what it is today with violence in the environment, with violence in nature, and with violence in humanity. That was the judgment on the age of innocence. The age of conscience was the flood when the Lord had to wipe out the whole of humanity except for eight souls in the ark. The age of humanism and the judgment at the end as they were building the Tower of Babel was the division of languages. God said, if I don't do something, they'll think they can do anything. And I pause there just to ask this question. If in that age of humanism, God had to bring a halt to them, because otherwise they would have thought they could play God, how much longer can he get, uh, allow the present age of humanism to continue? Because that's what we have at the moment. Uh, and, and humanism is the big religion of Europe. We can have any rules and we can have any lifestyle we like. And uh, we don't need God. There is no spirituality. There is no life after death. There is no God. So we're going to just uh, have genetic engineering. We're going to have all sorts of morality. We're going to have this, that, and the other. Well, if God brought it to an end at the Tower of Babel, how much longer can the world go on today? So that was the judgment at the end of the age of humanism. And then the age of promise. And that's where we are this evening. God brought that to an end by the plagues of Egypt, and I'll show you their importance in a moment. Uh, and the Red Sea drowning, because Pharaoh and the whole of his army got drowned as they tried to follow the children of Israel through the Red Sea. The age of the law, the judgment, was what the Lord was warning them about, which we looked at this morning. He was saying those seven condemnations or woes. He said, you've completely abandoned the principles of your walk with God that he set out and reaffirmed through prophet after prophet after prophet. You've lost it and you are now under judgment. And their judgment followed very soon after they completed their iniquity by putting the Messiah on a cross. And they lost, the, um, <clears throat> they lost their land. They lost their capital, Jerusalem, raised to the ground by the Romans in AD 70. And they lost the temple. And so we're in the, lay, uh, the uh, age of grace now, the church age. And the Bible makes it very plain that there's going to be a short, sharp period, seven years tribulation, and Revelation is about that. Also Isaiah 24, uh, we have the details of what's going to happen at the end of the age. The Lord even gave a hint of it in Matthew 25, 
Uh, and uh, he said, you know, the, 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 the history will go on, wars and rumors of wars, but then there were going to be certain signs which uh, you will know, and the church will disappear, and then God's judgment will come on this earth at the end of the church age. And uh, that's a big subject which is not for tonight, the tribulation. And then the seventh and final age, there is a period of judgment at the end of that age as well. However benign it is with Jesus ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. And we're going to rule and reign with him. Because Satan will be released for a short period. We have that in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And uh, there's going to be a final rebellion. You see, during the, uh, tribulation, uh, during the millennial reign, although Satan's bound, there won't be demonic temptation People will still have a will, the normal flesh and blood born in those days. And they may choose not to follow King Jesus. There's going to be a final day of reckoning for them. And after that, time will be no more. We enter into the eternal realms, the great white throne judgment of all the eras. And then the renewed heavens and earth. And we enter into eternity. I love that hymn, Amazing Grace, where it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, uh, uh, shining as the sun, we've no less time to praise his his grace than when we first began. Absolutely amazing to think of our eternal destiny, joined heirs with Christ because we're his bride. The church age, the age of grace, is all about the preparation, the, the bringing into being of the bride of Christ, every true believer for the last 2,000 years will be part of that redeemed, ransomed, and raptured body that will be eternally united with Jesus. I've said it before here, I'll say it again. In those eternal realms, I'm looking forward to exploring the universe (laughs) because we're joint heirs with Christ of the whole lot, the whole of creation. And eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of those that love God the things that are laid up for us. How can anyone not be a Christian when you think of the joys that lie ahead of us? So that's the context in which both this morning and this evening fit. I hope it makes sense, but I think in one of them, um, why we don't go through the tribulation, why I don't think we go through the tribulation, I've set out those details on that uh, Bible study. What I just want to do tonight is look at four points that arise from our reading from this chapter There are others, but I'm just going to deal with four this evening. And and the first point is this, the nature of the plagues. Uh, This is is very interesting because there were ten plagues altogether. And the first nine are natural phenomena. And and as I prepared for this and understand it, it just seems that um, the, 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 the phenomena are very natural consequences of natural processes that happen in Egypt, in that part of the world. The tenth plague, of course, was totally supernatural. The killing of the firstborn. I mean, that that was a hand of God. And that's what finally managed to bring Pharaoh to releasing the children of Israel. Even then he chased after them. But God was using natural processes. And I'll come back to that thought in a moment. Uh, But the natural phenomena that goes on in the created order can certainly be harnessed by God for his own ends. Some people don't like us talking like this and say, oh, no, 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 whenever God does something, it's always supernatural. Why? 
I mean, the whole creation is his. The whole natural order is his. When it comes to the the tribulation judgments that the world is going to go through, and that may be very soon, you know, part of what is going to open up will be natural phenomena. Uh, Don't turn to it, I'll just read this to you. But in Revelation chapter 6, as the tribulation period starts, the seals are opened. And uh, we we read this. Uh, I watched uh, as he, Jesus that is, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth. Slate figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So in the events that are going to engulf this world, when God brings the world to its judgment period at the end of this age, he's going to use natural phenomena. It may be meteorite impacts in a vast way that we don't know. But if you notice that the world is already getting worried about meteoric impacts. When the fires happened in Greece just two or three weeks ago, <coughs> the headline in the, in, the, in the Times newspaper was <coughs> Biblical Disaster. People are already saying what's happening in the environment is just like it happened in the Bible. Have you noticed that the world is using words like apocalyptic much more than we are? Uh, and they're beginning to see that what's happening in this world and the environmental change and so on and so forth is an upset in the natural environment. God is the master and the author of creation. He's the designer and the sustainer. And he can use creation forces, natural forces, to bring about his purposes. What was miraculous, even in these first nine plagues, is their intensity, timing, and location. Now, that was miraculous. That it happened exactly as God said it would through Moses. Uh, The intensity was abnormal. And the location was certainly miraculous because it missed out where the Israelites lived in Goshen. So, uh, although it was natural phenomena, they were under the hand of God. And God can use natural forces. I'll tell you what, when nature begins to get really into an upset, and people have even wondered whether the heat waves around the world at the moment, climate change, which is nature, it's natural phenomena, whether the world is out of control. Well, it's not. It's in God's control. And if it is happening, then it's because God's allowed it to happen. It may be the early foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the judgment period, the tribulation. Actually, as we understand it, uh, what was going on with these nine first plagues is that the river Nile, which rises in the center of Africa and flows for, what is it, 1,500 miles northwards to the Mediterranean, has from time to time severe flooding and inundation. And it overwhelms lower Egypt, where most of the population live. And when it does, it brings all sorts of consequences. And the things that went on in the nine plagues 
usually happen to a greater or lesser extent when the Nile is in extra flood, which it does sometimes if there is extreme rainfall in Central Africa. And here tonight we're in fifth, uh, the fifth, sixth and seventh plagues. Uh, and the first one is animal disease. And it's suggested that it may be anthrax. And the anthrax could have been caused by the dead frogs from, I think it was the fourth plague. Uh, and, the, um, and the flies, no it wasn't the fourth, it was earlier than that. But the flies and the, and the things that happened. And it led to putrid vegetation and animal carcasses in the fields from which the cows, the cattle, uh, got uh, anthrax. And that could have well been the cause. It's the sort of thing that happens. It's happened before to a greater or lesser extent. But if anthrax then was in the cattle, then the boils, the next one, in human beings could be when they pick up anthrax. And it's usually on the feet and on the hands. And it has been known that if cattle get anthrax, human beings can be affected and skin complaints are a natural consequence of a form of anthrax. And it's very often carried to human beings by the bite of the carrier fly that breeds in all the decaying vegetation and animal carcasses and then bites human beings. I understand in the hot weather we've had there, uh, there's been a greater incidence of insect bites going to A&E than there, is, uh, there has been for a long, long time. And they carry all sorts of diseases if they fed on diseased carcasses and so on. Interestingly, and, uh, uh, the, um, the, the usual period of the year when the Nile is in great flood is in, uh, in July and August because of the rainy season in Central Africa. And they can trace the sort of things that happened in the floods right through the subsequent nine months. And so the, uh, the, the problem with human boils or, or the, whatever they caught through maybe insect bites often happens when it does happen in December and January, which is giving a sort of a time period for the plagues going on quite quickly. And then from that, uh, we have the uh, hail that occurred. Where the, where the weather, having led earlier to the inundation of the Nile, then gave this tremendous um, storm period over the uh, main part of Egypt. And if that happens, uh, then it happens in early February, that sort of time, January, February. And uh, the barley and the flax are in growth at that time, but the wheat and the spelt are not, not yet really out of the ground. So it fits in with a whole natural sequence of events that's going on in Upper Egypt and as the Nile wends its way northwards. But it doesn't usually happen in the delta, the Nile Delta area, which is Goshen, where the Israelites lived. So that's the, uh, the point about the plagues, uh, the plagues. Just to get that you know, clear, God can use natural uh, uh, causes to bring about his judgment but as we read in that little extract from Revelation 6, when the natural environment suddenly gets out of control, away from the normal, people get scared. And that's what we're told will happen. How scared they were in the tsunami back in 2004. How worried they are about climate change, about the melting of the ice caps, and so on. We're very vulnerable 
when the whole environment starts to be in upheaval. And it certainly was in Egypt at that time. So that's the fourth issue, the point that I want to make from our reading tonight. Secondly, judgment. This was all part of God's judgment on that era. And he did it particularly in Egypt. Egypt was the main civilization of that time. It was one of the leading nations in that period of time. And Egypt worshipped a whole lot of gods, and those gods were based on nature. The sun god, the river god, the gods of frogs even. A frog was a god. Uh, One of their gods was a frog god. And so on. So God allowed his plagues to touch the very seat of their religion and to, uh, up, uh, to, to, to punish them on what they were worshipping falsely and showing that their gods were nothing compared to the greatness of God. And uh, it, it was really attacking the greatest civilization of that time and bringing that judgment into the way that uh, Egypt was worshipping and had been for some centuries. You see, when God brings judgment... It really deals with human causes, with what we've done. When God brought judgment to Adam and Eve, it was because of what they'd done. When he brought the judgment through the flood, it was because of what people had done in this world. We looked at what Jesus had to say about what the Pharisees and the religious leaders had done. That's why they were judged. Jesus spelt it out in the seven condemnations we looked at this morning. So it wasn't God's capriciousness saying, oh, well, I'll really mess them up. He was actually saying, I'm going to take the very issues that uh, you have engaged in, and I'm going to show what I think about it. And that's what judgment is. When judgment comes to this world, at the end of the church age, God will be dealing with the very things where man has had his pride. Let me give you one possible, and I'm I'm not being unduly speculative, But let me give you one little illustration that I think might be an illustration of this in our day. We're taking a great pride at the moment in the whole of the internet and computer system. We're now saying that we can have driverless cars. We're now saying that we can have tremendous uh, advances. Uh, We can even put microchips into human beings. We can bring together artificial intelligence and human intelligence and make a new breed of people. That's what they're thinking at the moment. How's God going to judge that? Well, what's happening with cyber warfare? What's happening with hacking into the very systems that run our banking and our transport and everything else we're going through? How vulnerable we are because we felt we've uh, achieved uh, what... um, Satan wants us to achieve, that is moving outside of the limits placed on human nature and becoming superhuman by embracing this new technology in all its fullness in ways we can't even think about at the moment. It's interesting, and we were sharing this a little this afternoon, that the whole center of worldwide internet and computerization and everything that's come out of it is the silicon chip, the microchip, all based on silicon. And what's silicon? It's sand. The whole of our civilization is based on sand. And we know what God said about the house built on sand, what Jesus said. And God can just touch the whole of the internet system. And this world's order will just collapse. 
Where will all our records be? Where will all our banking be? Where will all our transport be? Without the uh, computerization, God can just touch it because it's become a God. It's become a means whereby man says we can do anything we like. Just a little example of God's possible areas of judgment in the tribulation. I could say more about that, but not now. So that's judgment where God actually touches you see, Jesus, when he brought the condemnation for which they were going to be judged, which we looked at this morning, it's because of what they'd made of the worship of God, what they'd made of the temple, what they'd made of, of, of the laws of Moses. And God said, I'm going to touch that very thing and bring judgment upon it. And when God judges us, not in that way of judging our sin, because we are, our sin was judged by Jesus Christ on the cross, but when God touches our lives with things that he wants to change within us, he'll touch the very thing which we're holding near and dear and saying, do you love me more than these? Do you, uh, is this really more important to you than I am? And that's the way God deals with us in love and in mercy. Thirdly, the third issue that I just want to touch on tonight, Pharaoh's heart. Verse 12 says this, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. There's a big debate about this over the years. Was Pharaoh the person he was with the attitude he was because that's all he could do under God's sovereignty, says God hardened his heart. I don't believe God works like that. Uh, I don't believe we can say God just raised up Pharaoh to be an absolute tyrant. He chose to be a, a tyrant. So God took the way he had chosen to live and magnified it. There comes a point where God says, my spirit will not always strive. Pharaoh, you've got this attitude in your heart. This is the way you want to be. Uh, whatever I do, you're not going to change. So therefore, I will enforce what you want to be and what you want to do. Isn't that the way God deals with society sometimes in his judgment period? Oh, how gracious God is. You see, it's not a question of God raising up people to destroy them. Uh, Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is a just God. He can only work, if you like, in his judgment on what he already sees in our hearts. And if he sees unbelief, if he sees a, 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 that, that, that resistance to the work of the Holy Spirit... He will eventually say, have it your own way. You know, I said this morning about the great age of evangelism. I can remember when the gospel was preached Sunday evening after Sunday evening in our gospel halls. And when uh, people, young people, used to flock in and they gave their lives to the Lord. Uh, but some of them came Sunday after Sunday. And we used to pray for them, Lord, break through on that guy's heart. Break through on that girl's heart. And they'd sit under the gospel for maybe years. And then we didn't see them anymore. We just weren't interested. My spirit shall not always strive with man. And it just seemed that the Lord in his grace gives opportunity after opportunity. But then he says, enough is enough. And I, 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 I'm leaving you to yourself. Think of Judas Iscariot. Oh, I love this point. Here the, that last supper. And one of you is going to betray me, says Jesus in John 13. Who is it, Lord? It's the one to whom I offer the bread that's been dipped in the bowl. 
Judas knew exactly who he was talking about. Nobody else did. Now, in John 13, we read that when, in verse 2, when they come together, it said Satan had already tempted Judas to do what he was going to do. Only tempted him. Temptation is not a sin. It's giving in to the temptation that's the sin. And then Jesus said, it's going to be the one I give this uh, sop that's dipped into the, into the broth. And having said that and made it very plain, he then offers it to Judas. He didn't put it in Judas's mouth. He didn't force him to have it. He offered it to him. And Judas could have refused and said, no, I can't go through with it. But Judas actually reached out his hand and took it, despite the warning that Jesus had just made. And we read in John 13 that the moment Judas actually took it, Satan entered into him. And the die was cast. The deed was done. And Judas went out. If there, I think it's the best example of scripture of an 11th hour, 59th minute appeal of grace by God. Do you really want to go through with this, Judas? Of course, Jesus, being God, knew that he would. <laughs> but nevertheless, on the human level, Judas was given that opportunity at the very last minute to say no. Satan hadn't yet entered him and didn't do so until he took that bread and put it in his own mouth. You know, God is so gracious and long-suffering, but he already knew Pharaoh's heart. And he said, you've gone beyond the point of no return. Oh, how sad it is. I trust there's nobody here this evening. And you've been putting off and putting off and putting off coming to know the Lord Jesus. One day you may find that no longer there's any desire to even think about heaven. And the die has been cast. And you're lost. And I believe that's so solemn. And that's the issue there with Pharaoh, I believe. He'd had his opportunity time and time again. But he'd gone beyond the point and God said, no, I know your heart. <laughs> so can't do anything about it. It's your choice. And I'm not going to do anything else about it. He withheld his grace. And then fourthly, God's glory. Verses 14 to 18 again. And uh, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials, your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. I could have wiped you out. Raise you up for this very purpose that I may show you my power and my name. Because I knew, says God, the Eternal One, exactly how you will react. I knew that. When God brings judgment on this world, when he brings those sort of things, he is showing his glory. Did you notice that at the end of Revelation chapter 6, the bit I just read to you, as the environment suddenly explodes into a, 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 a chaos... The people hide themselves and say, oh, this is the day of God's wrath. How on earth did they know that? How did they know it's God's wrath? Well, because the warnings had already been given by Christians before they departed, the watchmen on the wall. They already knew that we should tell the world what lies around the corner. God is saying, I've already told you. I've already warned you. And you didn't take any notice. But they know exactly who is in charge of the environment then. Who the God of the world is. And they say that's the God we were told about and did nothing about it. And ignored the warnings. And we, uh, 
in that sense, they give glory to God. The world will know that God is real. They will know that he's in charge. But at the moment, there's a headlong rush towards turning their back on God, turning their back on Jesus, the one he sent, turning their back on all things spiritual, and saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Well, the Egyptians were like that and had their plagues, their judgment. The world will have its judgment. God will send them a man who they wish they'd never known, the Antichrist. And they will send, he will send them absolute mayhem. There are some bright features of the tribulation, but that's not for tonight. But judgment lies around the corner. God is not mocked. And he will bring the end of the age to a conclusion by showing his glory through his judgment upon an evil and godless world. And we're the ones to warn the world about that. May we be so concerned for the lost while we still have the day of grace that we'll say, look, judgment lies around the corner. Turn to the Lamb. Turn to the Lord. Look and live. You still have a moment to be raptured, to be rescued, to become part of the bride of Christ. The Lord bless you as you wait on the Lord for his will for your lives.